Hi and welcome to the podcast You're Having Tea with Alice. This week's episode is another two-parter with my brother, Dr. Henry Fraser. Uh, the second part of the conversation is on his podcast, the Man Mum podcast. So once you've listened to this, do go over and listen to the second part of the conversation. Uh, I love talking to Henry, of course, so um, I hope you enjoy listening to it. I very much enjoyed doing it. And I am back in Australia. I'm in quarantine in a small flat in Bondi, an Airbnb. And I'm jet lagged and I'm tired. And every night I will be doing a show live. Uh, at the moment it's on Instagram live. It may end up on something like Zoom or another platform if I can figure out something that's better. I'll be doing that every night until at least the 17th of April, which is when Savage launches on Amazon Prime. And so if you were looking forward to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, I will be doing a show every night. I won't be doing the same show every night, which is what I would have been doing at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, because I'm hoping that you will come back and watch different things. But I'll be doing conversations with Laura, conversations with Tiff, um, I'll be doing Q&As, I'll be doing a song, a song show that's just songs of mine. And that will be happening if you look me up on Twitter at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E, the same handle on Instagram, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E, for that. Um, and I'll post about it on Patreon, of course, if you're a Patreon at patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. Um, you'll get the inside scoop on those things. And um, I think that's all for now. I'll let you get on with listening to the podcast I'm not going to talk too much about the global pandemic that's happening because I figure you've probably had enough of that. This was recorded before everything went um, very downhill. I was still in London at the time. I was in Henry's flat in London and we had no idea that this was coming, but that might be a nice little break for you. So without further ado, I will let you get on with listening to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. Who are you and what are you drinking? I'm your brother, Henry Fraser. Dr. Henry Fraser. I'm drinking my usual robust with milk. And I'm drinking a sencha that you brought in stock into your own home for me. Mm. Which always makes me feel very honoured when people go out of their way to sort of provide... For you, <laughs> only for you. Yeah. <laughs> It is, it's such a nice thing if someone's like, oh, we got these cause in because we knew that you had them. Uh, we knew that you liked them. That's such a nice thing. Well, uh, it's a really bad idea for me to eat. I'm just snacking on cashews, but... Cashews are the least The very thing. slight elevation in nervousness that comes from knowing that I'm being recorded makes it really hard to eat and breathe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like quite short of breath now. Oh, that's all right. Performance, yeah. <sighs> Yeah. I'll tell you one of the things with The Last Post, which is this new <laughs> daily satirical news podcast, is that I write super densely for it. Like, it's quite joke-heavy. But then I end up writing myself these really long, convoluted lines, and it's actually increasing my lung capacity. <laughs> I think your delivery does rely on, yes, the comic effect of continuing to say it all in one breath. Yeah, I do think that your jokes, that you make it harder for yourself by being so joke dense. I, I, you know, I'm not deeply, deeply into comedy, but every now and then I'll watch a one hour special on Netflix and it's so easy and it's just the thing when you're in a certain mood. Mm. 
And I noticed that most really successful comedians, there are a few who are more dense, but I don't think I know anyone who's as dense as you, but most of them will only do, I don't know, 10 to 12 jokes or sort of subject jokes in the hour or less even. They're, they're sort of move in five to 10 minute chunks of material and then they just keep, they deliver very slowly and they keep milking it. But you don't like to do that because you've got a lot to say. A, I have a lot to say. B, I don't think of myself as particularly funny in terms of my on-stage persona. You know, there are people who are on stage who are... You just kind of laugh because they're there. Yeah, they've got what what they call funny bones. Um, it's, it's an industry in term, but um, I'm not like that. And so I feel like I have to sort of compensate for that. I'm not relatable. I'm not... Um, I think don't, don't you worry that, that it comes across that you're concerned about it and that you're just filling in the silences rather than just letting no because I'm putting jokes in there yeah like I'm giving them the content to kind of compensate for my lack of personality oh, that'd be ridiculous but <laughs> I, I kind of would like to see what would happen if you tried I mean do you ever feel that way like that you that just in the same way as like a, a guitarist or songwriter might try and you know, a songwriter who always writes in a major key might try a song in a major key, or a songwriter who always writes very consonant songs might try and do more dissonance, or someone who writes very symmetrical songs might try and do things that are a bit more open and open in their structure. Do you, do you ever consider giving, setting yourself technical challenges that, are, that demand a change in style? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that was what ethos was for me after the trilogy. I wanted to do a show that wasn't me gutting myself on stage. So ethos is just a purely technical challenge mm. of writing for two voices and changing up the pace in that I way. I suppose that was a different kind of technical challenge. So yeah, yeah, all of I think all of my shows are in the way that I write them is countering criticisms either that other people have leveled at me or that I level at myself. So each show is Sounds a kind healthy. of a <laughs> No, 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 it's like it's a dialectic process. The ne- the show mm. answers the question that the previous show asked. Either it's very healthy or it's very unhealthy. Maybe both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At different points, yes, depending on your sort of mental state. But yeah, this this uh, this year's show is called Kronos and I'm very late in writing it. Um, partly because of doing How unusual. This... No, uh, actually normally I'm quite on top of it, but uh, this year, I just... I mean, on top of it, for you, for a normal human being, even the on top of it framework is insane. This is something that I both... I feel so many feelings about. You are confused, <laughs> you were sobbing. No, 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 no. I, I feel a, a strange mix of horror and, like, concern for you. <laughs> and then also... Admir- like, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what a stressful situation you put yourself in and... Then I feel, yes, like a sort of a bit like irritated with you for putting yourself in that situation. But then, of course, you're not me. Like if you put me in that situation, then, yes, I would be perhaps within my rights to be irritated. But I do feel anyway, irrationally, incorrectly, improperly irritated on, for, on your own behalf. In that part of you that perceives me as an extension of yourself? Or? No, I mean, no, no. You just no, but I just have concern for you. And then I'm like, what have you done? But obviously you can handle it because, you know, it works for you. But then... I also feel a lot of admiration for your ability to to just be so um, effusively creative, prolific. I suppose is the cliche. Yeah, you just write. You write so fast and without too much um, self censorship or self criticism, 
and you just get things out and then fix them as you go, which is, you know, that's kind of what I'm trying to get better at doing by doing podcasting by just, you know, I, some, I did a few of them. I edited the longest, the, the longer pauses and sort of weird mouth noises out of, but I don't think that's time particularly well spent. I've got a lot of time. Like I'd rather in the, in the half hour that it takes to do that or hour that it takes to edit a half hour thing, listen to it and, you know, fix things. I'd rather just do another podcast. Yeah. Um, so this, you know, this, that's why this medium is quite good for me. Who's a, who's a sort of a, a, I don't know, it sounds pretentious. I'm more of a sculptor of things than a, than a, um, what's the word? Um, not constructor, but when you... Iterator. Put, no, no, when you put things together. Uh, um, yeah, there's a word for collagist. it. Collagist. No, it's just that people, you know, you just like a fabricator. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm more, I, I'm a chipper away rather yeah. than a... You're better at editing down than together. you are at yeah. accumulating them as it were. But yeah. I remember, I mean, you're also a perfectionist. Which I remember from... I, I am and I'm not. I'm getting better at that. I mean, five years of PhD or four years of PhD and one year of master's will crush that out of you somewhat when you've got to get things done. I remember you sort of practising the cello when we were little and just really working yourself into a frenzy of frustration. <laughs> just well, that was because I didn't practise enough, though. That was my own fault. Uh, mm. But not being good enough. Because I would practice, you. you know, very rarely and then be really frustrated at how bad I am. That's... If you want to sum up, like, what I consider the worst part of my personality, <laughs> that sort of sums it up. Is that, but, you know, I do my best not to, to, to rise above that. Anyway, I didn't really want to talk about no, no, creativity, let's, uh, although it is something that I'm interested in, talking to people whose jobs require... Well, as usual, I'm interested in... I'm interested in all kinds of creativity, and I like to talk to creative people. And maybe have that as another offshoot of my podcast or another subset. Um, and rephrase the one-man podcasting empire. No, but do it for just within. Well, in, just have sort of sub, sort of have subjects that I sometimes explore and give a particular hash to. But of course, I'm interested in obvious kinds of creativity, like the kind that you have. But I'm also interested in talking to people like my good friend Morgan, his dad, Professor Potts, of. I think it's NYU. Daniel Potts at yeah. New York University. Yeah, he's, an, he's a professor of archaeology who then, because Iran has become harder and harder to be in and do archaeological work in, has become an Iranologist and more of a historian than an archaeologist than a field archaeologist. But anyway, he described his creative process as sort of a very, like, magpie-ish, where he just, he, he accumulated material and his research is just like accumulating material and sort of his point of view on particular primary and secondary sources and sticking them together and gradually creating something in that way. And I thought, oh, it's really interesting because what he is doing is being creative because all the decisions about the selection and the ordering are creative choices, but we don't think of that sort of analytical, scholarly process as particularly creative. We think of it as sort of almost dry and or not mechanical, but I don't know, we don't think of scholarly work as creative, but it is creative. And so many things. Even people who do like just normal jobs, like. So this is something that I wrote about in my undergrad thesis, talking about specifically genre fiction, and that big divide that happened in uh, in pop culture between science and art. Yes. That that it's considered that there are there are two completely different skill sets, two different completely different types of personality. 
simultaneously overrates and underrates the artistic craft by saying it's a function of divine inspiration. Yeah. And therefore, simultaneously, you're a useless idiot who's swept up by the muse or not, and it's not hard work at all. And at the same time, oh, it's magic. You're amazing. Yeah. That, simul- that, that, that thing that people dislike historically about putting women on a pedestal, it's the same sort of putting you in a position that deprives you of agency. Now, I think some speaking. people who construct, you know, Coleridge constructed his persona as that and then once he wrote the first half of Christabel whenever it was 18 or something then more or less couldn't write poems anymore yeah <laughs> he's put so much prayer. I think also because he was obviously an opiate a lord nomadic that didn't make, make it tough but he didn't he had sort of prolific notes and had, you know his notebooks are amazing if you ever read them and he had Biographia Literaria which is a big messy piece of literary criticism and historical reflection and sort of literary autobiography but he didn't write any more poems, and I wonder if it's because he put so much pressure on himself uh, by casting himself in exactly that. In exactly role. that light. Yeah. And then on the flip side, you know, you think about those early scientists, that those early kind of pioneers of the scientific method. Mm. They were all maniacs, just following dreams and ideas and fantasies. And well, Da Vinci is the perfect example of that. Da Vinci is a perfect example of that. And then you have, you know, later on you have people like Isaac Newton who was sitting in his room putting pins in his eyeballs and trying to turn lead into gold at the same time as... What a waste, though. What a shame that he wasted his time on um, alchemy when he could have done another, you know, optics, gravity optics. Imagine if he'd done something else like... um, Other than alchemy. but Disease. Ada Lovelace, who was, you know, poetical in her approach to computing. I think she called it poetical... Mathematics or poetical... Poetical computing? Poetical... Something. Yeah, I can't remember what it was, but it was very... Yeah, I think it was mathematic, path, poetical mathematics, something like that. And, and so... But that and was her idea. But what was the idea of poetical mathematics was the idea of computation itself. She somehow saw the connection between information processing by way of um, these systems of information storage and, you know, looms and her... That it could go the, beyond... The mechanic, was it Babbage's... Um, Bad engine. Yeah, mechanic something engine. But but then analytical engine. But she saw that that could be applied to any kind of information processing and saw that as. But by creating that like dichotomy between art and science, you kind of simultaneously stripped out the poetry of science, and also rendered scientists relatively blind to the kind of muse element of their yeah. work the things that inspire them the things that they're driven towards the things that they the paths that they follow mm. or you know the the processes that they go through are presented always as very obvious and straightforward and next steppy when in fact there are all these creative choices that take place yeah. in the pursuit of data in the in the analysis of that data in the presentation of that data yeah. and in what forum you present the data Yes, and it's really I always it always tickles me that the the one of the main modes of presenting scientific dis- uh, work is the poster yeah. <laughs> like primary school. But obviously, like you know, this is a really high level thing. It's just sort of to give a great, and it must be really tough to make a poster to sum up your science in genetic and your 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 work in genetic engineering. In but, a in a, that is essentially a poem. You have to take yeah, yeah, exactly. years of it's work and poem. condense it into yeah. one flat kind of yeah, visual. Yeah, yeah, yeah presentation of a kind of that then gives you points to talk to and and encourages 
uh, inquiry and, and people to come come up to you. But I, I was, on that point as well, my friend Andreas, I was just um, hanging out with him this weekend. We, 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 um, we, I interviewed him a couple of episodes back and I'd like to interview him again about the creativity point because again, his, the stuff that he does is so hard compared to more or less anyone else doing a job because he's constantly having to solve, you know, he's trying to essentially, a lot of his job is trying to derive and organize information about bacteria that he's discovering, isolating them, separating them out from other bacteria using his special secret process. And, and there are no, basically because he's doing something new, there are no technologies that exist in order to do the things that he needs to do to analyze this, you know, the differences and doing bioanalytics on his, on the biome that he's got and all that stuff. And so he's literally just pasting together different methods, different forms of computation and like, and different assessments and programs to, to do this that more or less no one else has done. That is but like on a day to day basis, he's having to invent yeah. a new way of doing, you know, to be fair methods and, and, um, uh, um, you know, process-driven kind of activities, but still it's so hard. Yeah. And, you know, he was, oh, the whole weekend he was running a computer while we were hanging out, he was running a computer program that needed to do, I don't know, some 12,000 and something very complicated computations about DNA um, and to map different DNA structures and then share shared and different DNA between different bacteria. But... The whole weekend he was trying to do it, he sort of applied this method and come up with a, um, a program to do it. And it was and basically after four days of his computer running, he's seeing it just sort of ground to a halt about two thirds of the way through and couldn't process the amount of information he'd given it. Had to come up with a new, more streamlined way of filtering the information. But I mean, who's, you know. <laughs> tell me that's not creative. Yeah, exactly. That's not, tell, tell you that's not creative. It's, it's unbelievably creative problem solving. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that division. And 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 how much kind of uh, confirmation bias filters that stuff through. What do you mean by the conf- what's confirmation um, bias? It's too too complicated. We'll talk about it in, in, in another time because I know you want to talk about some other things. Oh well, I just want before we change the topic. I just thought of two sort of. Um, people who are interesting on this subject. One is Lawrence Krauss, who, although I think he may have, um, you know, he may have disgraced himself with some of his behaviour towards women over the, in the past. Always there are there are problematic allegations. I don't know what his sort of status is and whether he's cleared his name or not, or whether he's apologised or you know, but uh, or behaved appropriately, if you can, if it's even possible. Anyway, before he was disgraced, one of the things that he said said that was really interesting is that it's very, you know while it's really important to value science for the sake of the technology that comes out of it and the actual utility, um, the practical utility, he also wished that we thought about science and great feats of science and particularly things like astronomy um, and part you know and, and particle physics and these kinds of fields. Uh, in in the way that we value things like great symphonies or great works of art, just as great human achievements at having their own beauty to them, he sort of well, wanted the, the, an aesthetic the, of scientific. The, the way in which you inspire, the way in which you appreciate a symphony, if you're a fan of like classical music, is you listening to it gives you a vision of the mind of the artist. 
That's an interesting a, way to think of it. A lens and, and the fact that because we've made, I think, this not arbitrary but quite restrictive distinction between arts and science, it's harder or less common when you think about someone coming up with the theory of relativity to see that theory in the same way as you'd see a symphony as a lens into the mind of the creator, the artist, the person. Like, what what is the mind that thinks that? And that as a reflection of of the them human. as a as yeah, a human, and also of the human mind and what it's capable of in your own mind. You sort of you're, you're the reflection. It's sort of, of that in your own mind. Transcendental kind of access to a a shared humanity, b a new insight into your own humanity, c insight into what yeah. humanity is capable of or and might be capable this, of in the future. And then finally, that specific person, yeah, personality. Yeah. It's a. I was just a, yeah, I was listening to Elgar's Enigma variations yesterday i don't know why i felt like listening to it i didn't even know the name of the piece i hadn't recorded but i just it's so it's such a beautiful piece very moving and yes he it each variation was seek was was reflecting the personality or some conversation or interaction he'd had with the person and it was exactly that i mean it's that sort of he obviously had that insight too um, that you didn't need to know who the people were, but at the same time you could sort of discover something. But the second, I mean, the second point that I, the person who's really interesting on this point, who says really interesting, writes really interesting things, is my, obviously I'm a huge fanboy of um, Steven Pinker, and he has a chapter in his book Enlightenment Now that, which, which, um, where he says that where he argues that our concept, our um, gestalt, our, our idea of the cultured, urbane person ought to include uh, uh, numeracy and sort of scientific literacy. So we, we think of someone as cultured if they know some poems and can talk about books and music and ideally speak, speak a couple of yeah, languages. speak French and are aware of, you know, whatever existentialist philosophy or, not you know, great novels or whatever it whatever it is, or even just, you know, pop culture. But the fact that some, you know, he thinks that the fact that someone should not uh, uh, know the laws of thermodynamics, for example, ought to count heavily against them in your assessment of how urbane and well-educated they are. Um, and I must say, I can't recall them all to mind, other than entropy being the most interesting one, <laughs> if you're poetically minded. But, or a Buddhist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I like that. I like that idea that, that, that you're really missing out on sort of internalizing great cultural achievements and ways of thinking and institutions if you haven't added to your quiver. Although it's pretty tough. It's a lot of information to sort of be aware of. But, we, I'm, but I'm more or less he was arguing that there ought to be a canon. We ought to have a canon of scientific knowledge and there is to a certain extent but it isn't treated in the same way it's treated as a kind of a well, it's like theory of gravity um uh, uh theory of relativity um uh, they're taught uh, to you as building Men blocks rather yeah. than as beautiful Men in their own yeah yeah mendeleev and the, the bees <laughs> <laughs> Dar the you know, theory, theory of evolution and maybe even dawkins is you know the, the gene the gene die point of view and there are sort of there are a few bits and pieces but again they're not standardized and they're not sort of celebrated in that same they're celebrated in a different way they're not not celebrated but there's and i would add a third one which is uh 
law. Add to that that you people are... Well, civics, I would say, rather than law. Things like, I like to go occasionally and visit the Magna Carta. Because it's a ridiculous document. And the kind of... The pressures that happened in the history at the time and the social things that occurred that allowed for it to be created and the minds that were at work on it is, to me, again, super fascinating. There was sort of unprecedented development of human rights and then frameworks set up for the future of rights. Well, I think that King John also had a treaty, so there was that as between him and the nobles, and there mm. was another one which is, seemed equally as important, but I can't recall the name, as between the Crown and the Commons. Yes. And uh, it had to do with sort of mostly about forestry and what you're allowed to do, what like sort of But specifically and, the idea that you had, as a commoner had rights as against the king. As against the crown, yeah. Which is that... I think it was King John. I think, I'm not sure. But, yeah, I, uh, I, don't, I can't even remember if I've said this on the podcast before, but I have a friend who is an archaeologist and was talking about the ways in which the Black Plague led directly to the dominance of European power. In the world, <laughs> wow. which was uh, kind of the line that she drew through history was uh, n- not enough workers. All of a sudden, peasants had negotiating rights mm. and there was an incentive to mechanise and trade because the you know, crops were rotting in the fields and peasants could just all of a sudden start moving around. They weren't tied to the land in the same way. They had more negotiating power. And so that was the foundation of the rights that led to modern kind of democratic stuff. Who who was this? Who made this point? Uh, A friend of mine, Karen. um, Karen. uh, Anyway, I was just thinking to myself, gosh, we've thrown out a lot of references and the work of, you know, I... I, Is Stephen Pinker controversial? Yeah. Or is that Pinkerton? No, Stephen, Stephen Pinker is controversial because people think that he's too much of a Pollyanna or that he... That he... Um, dismisses legitimate concerns about environmental degradation and so on, that he's and that he's too much of a shill for kind of capitalism, ah. uh, and that he and that he straw mans the left sometimes. Well, I um, think the the left is easy to straw man sometimes, yeah. um, and I, f- I find that a very frustrating criticism when people say yeah, it's under. Well, yeah. When people say the thing that you are focusing on isn't the thing you should be focusing on. Yeah, well, you can only focus on one thing. And I think also because it's a book for popular consumption, I think that a charitable way to read it would be to say, I'm not, you know, to, to take as a preface, prefatory to the arguments to say, okay, I'm not attacking you all greenies, all uh, uh, social progressives and uh, social justice people. I am just this particular argument that I'm saying, you know, progressives say this, progressives say that, environmentalists say this. I'm not saying all environmentalists say this. I'm not saying all progressives say this. I'm saying a a strand and rather a a significant one makes these kinds of arguments and I'm refuting them in this particular way. Um, Yeah. But, you know, he has that confidence. And also I think it would make for a very... It would make it less of a good read if he was constantly qualifying and quibbling in the way that a more scholarly book a scholarly writer might be expected to, to, but that's what footnotes are for. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so, I'm so bad at figuring out how to put things in balance. Mm. 
I read whatever I'm reading at the time and I get swept away by it and then I watch whatever movie I watch and I get swept away by it. It's only much, much later that I can stick them into my mental framework. Probably wouldn't be good for your creativity to be otherwise. <laughs> yeah, you have to be able to be carried away with an your idea. Your kinds of creativity anyway. Anyway, so what we have just come to the end of the first half of this dual podcast, which is half Tea with Alice, half the Man Mum podcast. Mm. And uh, I know that your beautiful daughter is going to wake up from her nap soon, so we should uh, stop this and continue in the other side of the podcast. Let's call yes. this one Tea with Alice and that one the Man Mum, because I know the things we want to talk about uh, include uh, parental utility, which I've been talking about a lot recently, actually. And then, uh, yes, how, or rather, how the choice to uh, look after a child full time rather than work or do something wonderful for the world, how to assess it in terms of ethics, what yeah. the ethical significance of it is, and I've given that a lot of thought. Uh, yeah. So I'd, I'd be happy to talk about that. So we'll talk about that. Uh, you are listening to Tea with Alice at the moment. Skip on over to the Man Mum podcast, which you can find on whatever podca- podcatcher you are using at the moment. Can you do Or Henry Fraser, <laughs> the Man Mum podcast. Mm. Or is it Man Mum? It's the Man Mum. It's, I think it's Man Mum. Okay. Henry it's... Fraser, Man Mum podcast. No, Look it up. Man Mum. Yeah, well, Google it. You'll find it. <laughs> um, or I'll put a link up to it on my Twitter at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. Mm. Email me at alicerfraser at gmail.com. Or sign up on patreon.com slash Alice Fraser uh, for various free things and an insight into the behind the scenes of my uh, creative process and other things. I will behind talk to the behind. Behind the behind. <laughs> um, um, you're having tea with Alice. I will talk to you again next week.
And when the boss he looks round the door, tie your ends up, doffers he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do. For Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally right fall day, right fall day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away. Is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally right fall day, lally right fall day.